Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth was then welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, Let there be light! And there was light. The word of the Lord. So I was really excited to start this six-month series in Genesis 1 through 11 because Genesis is so formative for so many of our spiritual memories, right? Like even if you don't consider yourself very religious or you didn't grow up uh, religious, uh, you probably still can remember like one story from like the first 11 chapters of Genesis and probably like with bright pastels and beautiful colors, you, you know, like the stories of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, but you know, like they also don't have any of the horrific deaths in them and that somehow like no one's ever really fully naked, like everyone's strategically covered with branches at, at all times. So I was really excited to get back to these formative stories with a more mature uh, adult lens and, and to see how they would shape us now until our sermon creation community group on Tuesday realized like how triggering they could be. Like, I'm kidding you not, the first line, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, someone in the group was like, hey, is it just me, but I don't remember it starting this way. And then basically for the next hour, over three verses, we had a series of small existential crises. <laughs> now this actually parallels with a phenomenon known as the Mandela Effect, which is when groups of people collectively remember small details about the past differently. Uh, details like how you spell the Berenstein Bears, which apparently is Berenstain, uh, that the Monopoly guy allegedly did not have a monocle, uh, and that Fruit of the Loom underwear did not have a cornucopia in the logo. I still do not believe this. Now, this means one of two things. Either this is proof of a global conspiracy to brainwash us, or more likely, this is our brains overlapping older but similar memories on top of one another, and so things start to get a little blurry. Now, why do I mention the Mandela effect? Because if you have some childhood familiarity with Genesis, this is likely to happen. Over time, our brains almost certainly formed these overlapping memories around some of the details of these stories, and now they're in our recollection just a little bit fuzzy. But I got good news. It's not a conspiracy theory. You're not a bad Christian. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through it together. And the place where we do this is in the first three verses of Genesis. When God began to create heaven and earth. Now already, this might sound a little different than what you're used to. What you're probably used to, if you've heard this before, uh, would instead have been, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. 
This version of our childhood implies that in this story that this is the beginning of everything. That there was nothing and then God made everything. However, the earliest Hebrew versions that we have imply that the beginning of everything has already begun. And that's if there was a beginning at all. And then when we read Genesis 1-1, this is detailing what is happening sometime later down the cosmic timeline. Now, you might be curious. Why don't we hear about the actual beginning of the universe? Why don't we see these answers about the origins of space and time? Well, one, that this is a really modern question to ask. And this is not a question that anyone was asking 3,000 years ago. But also, while Genesis has been classified by scholars in a number of literary genres, a science textbook is not one of them. Can I get an amen? All right, some of y'all are going to talk to me later about that, I know. Which, I know for some of us, this might seem obvious, but you would be surprised, and if you grew up evangelical, you're not surprised about how many people want Genesis to answer questions about science. And yet, not only are of the authors of Genesis not capable of answering these questions of origins that even our modern cosmologists today struggle to get their heads around, but our authors of Genesis simply have no intention of answering them. But if that's the case, what's the point then? What is the question that the opening of Genesis is trying to answer? It's this. What is the character and nature of God? Now, why is this question so important for people living in the ancient Near East 3,000 years ago? Because everyone around the Hebrews is saying that there are other gods and that those other gods are worthy of worship. Those gods should be obeyed. The question looms so large in the minds of the original storytellers that the Hebrew word for God's name in the first three chapters of Genesis is Elohim. Now, why does that matter? Because Elohim is not a unique name or title. It's just the plural of the Hebrew word for God, lowercase g. It can refer to any deity, In fact, some scholars even think that this was the name of a cult deity in another religion nearby the early Hebrews. The early Hebrews simply just borrowed the name, made it a plural. But they did so that Elohim would mean this, God of gods. In other words, Genesis opens with, when Elohim, God of gods, began to create heaven and earth. Even the first name of God reflects this emerging realization by the Hebrews of what the true God is really like, but also that there are these other gods that need to be reckoned with. Now, this is one of the things that might trip us up a little bit with this idea of other gods. Are they real? 
are they imaginary? Are Christians supposed to believe that there are other gods out there? Did they exist at one point and now they don't exist at another point? Are they demons? Are they fallen angels? Like how real are these gods? But I think the answer today isn't too different than it was then. Whether these gods are real or imaginary, I don't think it matters too much. And here's why. Regardless of their factual existence or non-existence, a God becomes functionally real when we give them our allegiance, when people act like they're real. So even if that deity in question does not literally exist and exert its own divine power, its adherents can project the concept of that deity out into the world through their own human efforts. So for example, if someone feeds the hungry in the name of their God, that literally impacts the person they fed. It doesn't matter if the God is real or not. A person got literally fed because of a concept. Likewise, if someone sacrifices a virgin in the name of their God, that literally impacts the person they are sacrificed. It's not helpful to be like, well, hey, don't worry, that God's imaginary. You are still really dead. This is the situation that the Hebrews then find themselves in. Regardless of whether these hundreds of gods are literally real, other people are sure acting like they're real, and other people are wanting to make the Hebrews follow those gods instead. And so all this begs the question, when you're surrounded by so many options, how do you choose which God to follow? For the Hebrew people, this answer of what God to put your faith in, it begins to crystallize. The arguments start to form in the face of two major threats, two times when the Hebrew people's future existence was in jeopardy. The first time is when these two stories, these stories in Genesis, are being composed as oral tradition as nomadic people 3,000 years ago. And during this time, there are these more powerful cult religions everywhere, and they're being endorsed by more powerful nations. The Hebrew tribes then had very little going for them. And so Genesis is trying to make this case to follow this particular Hebrew deity, Elohim, even though Elohim is clearly the geopolitical and divine underdog. The second time comes about 500 years later when the Hebrew nation has been crushed by the Babylonian Empire and they are enslaved in the city of Babylon. This is when scholars believe that the oral tradition of Genesis gets formally written down and now becomes the book of Genesis. Now why write it down then and not before? Because it was during this time that the pressure to convert to the Babylonian religions would have been enormous. Think about it. You're, you are slaves in another nation. In terms of pragmatism, there is no good practical reason to keep your faith in Elohim. 
So Genesis is curated. It's compiled to make the case again that they should remain faithful to this particular Hebrew deity, even though Elohim once again seems like this geopolitical and divine underdog. This context is key for understanding and making sense of Genesis. And so when we're able to let go of our need to answer some of those modern questions and we're able to step in to the mindset of the original authors of Genesis, it is then when the beauty of Genesis starts to be lit up before us. Which brings us to verse two. And then the earth was welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters. Again, for us science types, this can be a little anxiety-inducing for us because not only does the opening of Genesis not seem to be happening at the beginning of time, but there seems to be this other stuff. Earth, the deep waters that's already there with God and perhaps always was with God. Now, Does this mean that God didn't actually create everything from nothing? In Christianity, this is known as the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. I don't think this needs to be our conclusion. I still believe that God existed before all material existence. But this does mean that once again, the early Hebrews weren't trying to answer the question of where did everything come from? Rather, in order to help determine what God they should choose to follow, they first needed to answer the question, how did everything come together? Now, why this question? You see, in the ancient Near East, in multiple cult religions, the answer to the question of how everything came together was told this way. This is the pagan story. There was welter, In waste and darkness, everything was chaos. There was no earth because the deep waters covered over everything. And it was in this dark, watery chaos that a pantheon of gods began to fight each other for control, killing and dominating their rivals. And in this process of the great war of the gods, the world as we know it came to be. The chaos became a little less chaotic, but only through the sheer divine violence of the most powerful deities coming out on top over the other and forging their order onto the world. World. That's how everything came together. But then the Hebrew sages, for some inexplicable reason, you might even call it the Holy Spirit, felt like another story needed to be told. A better story. They say, no. No, our God... The true God of gods isn't like that. There was no war of the gods. Elohim was sovereign in unassailable truth. And order wasn't forged by violence or domination. It was formed by what? Verse three. God said, let there be light. Elohim simply spoke. That's all that was needed 
That's how the world came into being. That's how everything came together. And I know some of you know that line, God spoke and created the world. But, but as I, I sat with this scripture and its context, can, can I just kind of tell you a confession? It's kind of silly, but, but I always imagined in my mind that when the text said God spoke, it was like this deep baritone voice, like James Earl Jones central casting. And so that like when it said, let there be light, dun, 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 dun. Right? That's, that's how it sounded in my mind. But now after realizing what the, what the Hebrews were doing in retelling this story, and that God didn't create order from violence, but rather the life-giving potential of God's voice, and that the ancient rabbis even said that when God was hovering over the waters, God was like a mother bird, I don't think God created heaven and earth with a booming command. I think God created heaven and earth with a hushed instruction. Elohim fluttered above the deep and with a soft invitation of a kind parent said, let there be light. Do you see how important that is? Do you see how formative that this could be for the Hebrews? Do, do you see how formative that this could be for us? No matter what else you read about God in the Hebrew scriptures, even those stories of judgment and wrath, they're there. We shouldn't pretend they're not. But those aren't the first stories. Those aren't what fundamentally characterize God. No, what fundamentally characterizes God, the very first story about God, is a God that uses words instead of violence. It's a God that doesn't forge order out of death, but a God that brings harmony out of divine breath. A God who doesn't hide in the darkness but brings light to the world. This is the character and nature of God. This is why the author of the Gospel of John begins writing his narrative about the life of Jesus. And where does he begin? With allusions to Genesis 1. Let's look again at our first reading from this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The author of John saw in the opening of Genesis 1 a foreshadowing of Jesus. From the welter and waste and darkness, from the chaos made by sin, God speaks but a word into it. And yet this time it is not just a word, but it is the word. Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, come to restore harmony. And how does Jesus do it? He doesn't resort to violence 
or domination. In fact, Jesus suffers violence by the powers of this world set on domination. Jesus was killed by the gods of this world. Greed and power and empire. Gods which are false gods but still have the power to kill and destroy. And yet Jesus was the light, the light of humanity. And so even a cross, even death could not stop him. Why? Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overtake it. It could not overtake him. Friends, though, our context is very different from the Hebrews. We too face a similar dilemma. There are many gods in our culture that we can choose to put our faith in. Consumerism, hedonism, nationalism, left-wing ideologies, right-wing ideologies, whatever person's running for a president in a given cycle, some of you all, your fantasy football team. Whether these gods are real or imaginary, it doesn't really matter. Other people are acting like they're real. Other people are giving their time, their priorities, their finances. People are putting their hopes in them and they want you to put your hope in them as well. Why put your faith today in the God of the Hebrews? Why put your faith in Elohim? Can I be blunt? Because that God is simply better. That's it. That God is simply more worthy of my allegiance. And to the extent that it was true for the Hebrews then, it is doubly true for the followers of Jesus today. You see, when God began to create the world of primordial chaos, he did it with a whispered word and the light of the cosmos. That was good. But 2,000 years ago, from the chaos of sin, when God began to recreate the world, God repeated that process through the incarnate word and the light of Christ. The good news is that we worship a God that is that gentle, that life-giving, that light-bearing, that consistent, that committed to us, and that much better than any God our culture can offer. May you put your faith in Elohim. May you put your faith in the God of gods. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Colin, we got a lot of questions this morning. I'm going to start with the one that I think will be the hardest for you. Oh, well, thanks. We'll start off. You're you're welcome. All right. I find it easier to not follow physical gods like politicians, actors, and stuff like that, but I find it much more difficult to not worship things like wealth, power. What advice do you have on how to recenter this pull and desire in our capitalistic world? 
I told you. Hardest one. Hardest one. All right. So I'm going to put this in the category of I cannot dignify the question in 60 seconds or less. But I'll do this question tomorrow too as okay. well. Um, so I love that this person has a self-awareness. Let me just affirm the person, right? Because they're like, okay, cool. People, I realize I don't, I don't want to follow those kind of gods, right? But like, man, money and, and things like that, like that's, that's – we. I think particularly because capitalism and consumerism, right, is the air that we breathe, you can't escape it even if you want it to, right? You'd have to go to, like, an island in the middle of nowhere, and maybe even then it would probably follow you. So, yeah, this person's recognizing that, like, this is the air we breathe. And the Hebrews were dealing with that as well. They're surrounded by all these other gods where it's, it's just assumed that this is the system and, and this is where they all are. So how do, you, how do you step out of that? Well, it's a gradual process. I think it first starts with acknowledging that you need a counterculture. If you are alone, in this process of saying, okay, I don't want to bow to the God of consumerism, for example. It's, you just can't do that by yourself. It's, it's too big. It's too omnipresent. And so you have to start with an intentionality of a community of people, like whether that's just a few friends you're starting with or you're doing it in your community group or even your church. And so you start to kind of create a small counterculture to say, okay, if we don't want to follow this cultural God, how can we live in ways that are different? Um, and, and how can we support each other in that process? You cannot do it alone, especially for those big ones. So that's, that's my starting point. All right. What are the reasons to believe that God was present before all material existence? How could this be so? Okay, so this is just a generally an assumed position by, I would say, most philosophers. This is the philosopher God. This is also why you hear about in the beginning God created. It's because the Jews later on, we're talking like Second, second Temple Judaism, were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. God existed prior. And the Greeks kind of came to that same conclusion. And so this idea that you would need God before material existence, because God is supposed to be something outside of material. Creation is different than the creator. And so when we start talking about time, right, God doesn't exist necessarily before that which, before because God created time, so we're getting in a little weird space there, <laughs> but most philosophers have assumed that um, God needs to be distinct from material realm, and therefore, that's been the general consensus with philosophers for, I don't know, over the last 2,000 years, probably like 25, 2,300 years. Okay. How do I believe in warrior God Yahweh who won battles and the whispered word on the water? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Beautifully um, written, too, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, someone's a poet in here. Okay, yeah. um, so maybe the short answer is um, whenever we try to pigeonhole God into one character trait, we're probably going to get God wrong. And mm -hmm. so this is why the Bible is so amazing in showing all these different complex, dynamic, diverse, and somewhat... Um, almost sometimes feels oxymoronic traits of God, things that are kind of held in this deep tension, and yet they are all this expression of God. And I would expect to see, I would hope to see, if God is real, God has a very, very dynamic uh, personality and trait that is going to manifest in both a God who whispers softly, but also can fight our battles for us and with us. And so that's a, it's an interesting thing to wrestle with, but I think it points us to something that's true. Thank you, Colin. You handled those beautifully. Thanks, and y'all have texted in a ton of questions, so feel free if you've got any more questions, con continue texting those in, and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook, Facebook Live. and Instagram. Oh, look yeah. at you. I do watch the Instagram okay. ones. See, yeah. I know. It's glad yeah. someone's watching I do it. watch right. the Instagram ones. So make sure you're following us on both Facebook and Instagram. Great. Thanks, Sam.